meditation, meditation, meditation. Depending on the quality of my mind, you know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice. You can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is The Rocky Road to Enlightened Society. We all come with a set of fears, expectations, and habitual behaviors on top of our basic goodness. In this episode, we discuss the concept of an enlightened society and the many challenges, practical realities, and obstacles that come along with achieving this and how we can work towards this in our own lives. Today we are joined by Vegan Aharonian. Vegan began studying Shambhala Buddhism in 1996 and started teaching in 2007. In addition to teaching regularly in New York City, Vegan also teaches and mentors the Shambhala group in Russia. He is a member of the Governing Council for the New York Shambhala Center and a co-director of the Practice and Education Committee. Here's Vegan to take away the discussion. I want to start with sharing with you that when I came to Shambhala, uh, the fact that Shambhala teachings, this train of thought, this system of thought, philosophy, is addressing the question of how society, a healthy society, should function, it was very, very important to me because I grew up in the Soviet Union, in Armenia, there was a country called Soviet Union 30 years ago. Uh, and <clears throat> from fairly young age, I was uh, concerned with the unfairness how the Soviet society functioned. Uh, I thought it was suppressing initiative, uh, it was unproductive. Oh, no, 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 I had my thoughts how... Uh, unfair and unproductive it is. And then I thought that uh, Western society, democracy, capitalism is, is uh, paradise. Everything is so proper and works correctly as clock and everything is in place. And then when I came here, I realized it's not that perfect either. The, and so, so I remained without a good answer to how, uh, what's, how society... Of course, I was thinking more in terms of economic rules and political rules. <clears throat> but then when I came to Shambhala and I faced that um, topic again, I thought, again, aha, uh -huh, finally, there is uh, some philosophical system that... Addresses. Of course, I had to accept that uh, not only the fact that they are concerned with the, f the, the, the notion, but also they are addressing it in a meaningful way. Um, and so I was happy and satisfied in that sense. How many of you never heard of the story of Dava Sangpo? Dava Sangpo. If you had never heard of that name, that means all right. Okay. Um, I ask because uh, it's one of our most important fundamental stories on which Shambhala teaching, teachings are hinging. Uh, when uh, Buddha was teaching, I'll have the privilege, the first one to tell you, to those who never heard. Uh, 
so when Buddha was teaching, the tradition in those days was to become monks, to abandon your secular life, families, and become uh, monks, live in monastery, and that's how you learned the teachings and practiced and followed them. And one day, a uh, king of a kingdom called Shambhala, King Davasangpo, came to Buddha, to one of his teachings, and, and said, I'd like to practice the wisdom you're teaching, but uh, I can't really abandon my country, my family, I have the responsibilities, they are relying on me, uh, it would be irresponsible for me to do it, and I uh, frankly enjoy life enjoyments too, and don't really see why would I need to abandon those either. And Buddha asked all the monks to leave the room, and so he stayed with uh, King Davasangpo and gave him these teachings, called chakra teachings, um, how to incorporate the wisdom that Buddha was sharing with the secular daily life, with all those things I listed, responsibilities, family, the daily life we live. And so from those teachings came the Shambhala teachings. They are the teachings how to incorporate uh, this wisdom into our busy uh, life full of responsibilities. And uh, Dawa Sangpo was highly evolved person to begin with, and so he got the teachings, he got enlightened himself, and then he taught it to his ministers, his subjects, and everybody started practicing these teachings, and eventually the whole country became enlightened society, and they moved to another realm, out of the realm we are in. That's how the story goes. And so that becomes the core of the Shambhala teachings, the notion of enlightened society. Another very fundamental part of the teachings, without which I can't really move forward in this talk, is uh, basic goodness. And that's the notion that there are two ways I, I'll offer, I'll offer two explanations what it is. One is um, that in any given moment, we have access to a completeness of life, to beauty of life to um, the healthiness, the wholesomeness. I hope you can remember moments of life when you are in touch with, say, a sound of an ocean or view of a lake or a forest, a breeze, and when you feel kind of relieved and fully present and it feels complete and fully in place. You are in place, the reality is in its own place, there is nothing missing. It's complete and healthy, and here I am, worthy human being. So that's the notion of basic goodness. And another way uh, I often explain this is that any one of us can think of yourself as a decent, well-wishing human being, worthy of respect. 
We make mistakes, we get angry, we get irritated, but in our core, we all long for being uh, decent, benevolent, generous, compassionate. That's, that's in our core. We, when we are diverging from that, we feel bad about ourselves normally. Why would, would it be so? Because in our core, we want to be wholesome, uh, worthy human beings. And, and that's another way to uh, what basic goodness means. That basically, every human being fundamentally is worthy of respect, is complete and in place. And we, the, 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 all those thoughts that we call poverty mentality, I'm not good enough, I'm not disciplined enough, I don't work effectively enough, and on and on and on. My circumstances are not good enough, I didn't have good enough upbringing. I'm lonely, I can't make friends, whatever we think of ourselves. All those things that we collectively call poverty mentality, those are artificial... Uh, the, the, the core is I'm good enough the way I am. That's the basic goodness notion. And th this is extremely, extremely important. There are many consequences if you accept that I'm fundamentally worthy human being then there are a lot of important consequences in how we act, how we react to things, and how do we feel minute to minute. Coming back to uh, Kingdom of Shambhala, when Dava Sangpa taught this basic goodness to his subjects and they started to act from that space, respecting themselves and respecting each other, that that elevated the society into enlightened society. At this point, I want to ask you, uh, when you hear the words enlightened society, if you visualize a society that is, and I don't want to put the word there, I want you to come up with the words. How, how would you describe that dream society? Any qualities you would... People are kind to each other. They uh, don't steal, don't, you know, they um, don't get into violence. No wars, no gangs, no <laughs> mm -hmm. separation, no racism, no prejudice. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like a utopia. Uh-huh, yeah, I'm glad you used that word, I was going to. I mean, this is not my words, but um, to have other people treat you the way you would have other, you would treat other people the way you, they, you would have them treat you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's a biblical saying. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so, uh, yeah, uh, idealistically speaking, we would imagine all those things you said and uh, maybe nobody gets sick. Uh, everybody is happy, joyful, right? No earthquakes, no traffic jams. So that would be a utopian idea. You know, I lived again, if I go back, I lived in Soviet Union with, with uh, communism being a utopian idea when everybody work work as hard as they can and everything would be free in the stores but nobody will take more than they really need 
like there is a Ferrari and there is a Honda, but you say, why do I need Ferrari? I'll take Honda, even though both are free. <laughs> so that's, that was, that's how we thought the idea of communism is, that everybody is happy to work as hard as they possibly can and take just as little as, as sufficient to, to live. And then, it's, anyway, so <clears throat> coming back to the idea of enlightened society. Uh, one other interesting thing was, uh, and you said about separation, in the first uh, chapter of uh, the Shambhala book, our main book, Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior by Chogyam Trungpa, the very first chapter talks about enlightened society, and it stuck with me when I read that enlightened society includes, it's not necessarily a society of Buddhists, it includes Christians, Muslims, atheists, Jews, it's, it's an open society. It's not, it's a secular society. It doesn't mean there are no principles, of course. We'll talk about that. We, we already said about basic goodness. Uh, so people would um, accept the notion that we are all fundamentally good and I'm worthy of respect and you are worthy of respect. And so we make an effort to treat each other accordingly. But then let's, let's come down to earth. Uh, what we spoke about until now, we call in Shambhala heaven. Heaven, heaven is a big view, uh, <clears throat> aspirations, views that are not constricted by nitty gritty things. Those, those the, the views we call the, the heaven aspect. Now let's come down to earth. Earth is, people do get sick, People feel lonely, people get angry, we get irritated, we get impatient, we lose jobs, we have to take care of finances. Nothing goes really away. Even if you fully engage the notion that uh, you are basically good, worthy as you are, and so on, you still have to deal with all those daily things. Uh, there is still uh, there are still dysfunctional families and traumatic childhoods and uh, traumas go on through lives and manifests in various ways in our reactions and fears and causes constraints what we let ourselves do and what and where we are f afraid to go. We collectively call those fears. There are a lot of fears that we um, experience throughout every day. Various forms of fears. Loneliness, doubts, poverty mentality, addictions. Uh, a lot of habitual behavior. Habitual because we think that's how we should be, and if somebody doesn't behave the, that way, they irritate us, they are wrong. Uh, many of these things are easy to, easier to work with, but there are things that really are hard to accept as normal. A couple of days ago, a friend of mine, uh, she's a special education teacher. She started in a new school, and she tells me there is this boy who works really hard, tries to learn everything, shows real hunger for knowledge. 
And the colleague told her she's new, called her that he has a brain tumor. And so it is, of course, so heartbreaking to see somebody, well, I don't know if it's curable or not, but uh, somebody who has potentially incurable disease and tries very hard to learn whatever he can while he's still here, right? These things are still happening, whether it is enlightened society or regular society. There are things that are really hard to accept as normal and healthy. Now, how do we reconcile these two things? This This was Earth. Earth is the practicalities, realities. We often call this the kitchen sink of life. So on one hand, we have all the difficulties we face, unpleasant things and uh, obstacles and challenges. We, they don't go away. That's the earth we have to deal with. And we can have this big view of enlightened society where everybody is worthy, complete, decent, and tries to deal with their fears the best they can. This is an important thought I just expressed. We do recognize that we come with a set of fears, uh, expectations, poverty mentality, habitual behaviors, and we need to learn to work with all of that. But underneath, we know that we are decent, complete human beings. And so enlightened society in Shambhala teachings is a society where people work with all that and help each other work with all that. We, I'll repeat, this is important, we recognize these two aspects. Life is worthy to live, is complete, beautiful, colorful, and workable. The word workable is very important. And there are things to work with, work on. Our fears, I listed a number of them, right? Our limitations. I'll tell you a parable, (coughs) a story, actually, it's a children's story. So there is this kingdom, another kingdom, uh, uh, and emperor is very old, realizes that he'll die in the foreseeable future, and uh, decides to pick a new emperor. He doesn't have a heir to inherit the throne, and he decided to pick a new uh, emperor. So he collects, uh, he gathers all the children of the kingdom who wants to be next emperor. And uh, he gives them assignment. He, he gives them seeds and asks to grow a flower and bring it back in a year. So every child gets a seed, goes home to grow a flower and bring it back in a year. And so one of the... <coughs> The children is a boy, Chowen. I don't remember the name in the story, Chowen. Um, and so he also plants the seed in a pot and waters it and attends to the 
seed, but nothing grows out of that seed. And he works very hard. He puts on the in the sun and puts some uh, fertilizers and puts in a bigger pot. He really takes care of that seed the best he really can. And he has done this before. He's Newton. He's not new to this. So he works very hard for a year and nothing grows out of that pot. So the day comes when everybody has to take their flowers to the emperor. And of course he has a choice of not going at all. But he does go. So he's in fear, he's in pain, he's ashamed, and he walks with his empty pot while every other child is walking with nice flowers. So they all walk in the streets of their city and they look at them and say, Chowin, how dare you? You are insulting. How couldn't you grow anything? Uh, and so he's holding his tears and in fear and ashamed, but he, in fear, walks to the palace and so there they are, all the children with beautiful flowers, and he's standing in the corner in fear and in tears. And the emperor walks around, uh, it looks at all these beautiful flowers with a serious look on his face, and eventually comes to Chowen and says, Chowen, what's wrong? Why couldn't you grow a flower? And Chowen, through his fear and tears, says, look, I did everything I could. I did this, that, and I've grown a lot of flowers. I put a lot of effort. Nothing grew. What could I do? And then the emperor turns to everybody and says, children, I don't know where did you get your flowers from, but all the seeds I gave you were cooked. And Chowen was brave enough to be honest and bring his fear to the table and share, and, and that's the real honesty and bravery that I can entrust the empire to him. So the reason I thought of telling this story because uh, of that uh, balance and, and combining the fears we have with honesty and decency and you still feel that you are whole and complete even though sometimes we misbehave, we get angry, aggressive, impatient and so forth. We can face our fears and yet know that we are worthy human beings. And then if we can work with that, it gives a lot of confidence and strength knowing that fundamentally I am good, the world is good, whatever happens is workable. That what, what brings enlightened society to life. If we can radiate that sense of confidence to others, and that sense of confidence includes acceptance of our fears, our limitations. Yes, there are things I'm afraid of. I'm working with it. That doesn't mean I have to put my head down. I still can walk with the 
as Chogyam Trungpa said, with uh, head and shoulders, with that sense of openness and dignity that we hold when we meditate. We need to be reasonable, of course, with all this. There are situations we can't work with, and we need to accept them the way we are. We, we might have fears that are too difficult to overcome. Reasonability is important. Common sense is still... And I'll end with another, uh, with another short... Uh, not really story. Um, one day they asked an enlightened teacher, how is it, um, how did he, his life change after he got enlightened? And he says, before I was enlightened, I had to cook, I had to attend to my garden, I have to... Uh, I have to wash dishes and do all those things that everybody else has to do. After I got enlightened, I still had to cook and do dishes and attend to my garden, but it stopped being a problem anymore. It's not a problem anymore. Uh, one of uh, our students uh, years ago, I told her, I told that story during the class, and so she's, after, for years after that, she kept reminding me that she put that on a piece of paper, and every morning she reads that everything's still happening, but it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> and so that's the attitude of enlightened society. Yes, things keep happening, but it's not a problem. It's something to work with, not to ignore, not to pretend it's not happening. But it's not, it's challenge. It's not a pro, we don't need to think, why me? Why did it have, if I did that way, this wouldn't happen to me. If, if they didn't do this. No, okay, it's not a problem. It's something to deal with, something to work with. Life is something to work with, with a sense of joy and confidence. And that what brings about enlightened society. When, when you asked us kind of what we, a, a word we would use to describe enlightened society, um, I didn't have a word that came to mind, but I kind of had an image of like, um, like, when, like, a, like a small town whenever everyone would come together to help out the house that was going through a hard time, um, or you know, like the end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life when everyone comes to George Bailey, and you know, it's obviously they're all going through hardship or the image of like you know people in the old days like passing buckets in a, a fire line to you know put out somebody's house and um it's it's like because they're not panicking because they're not like oh this is the end of the world they're able to come together and work together and and deal with it and eventually it goes away and it, everyone is able to move on together i i think in each generation the traumas that we've all experienced developmentally, you know, that we're not good enough, or, you know, why aren't we being loved in this, in the way we need, well, we must not be good. Those traumas get passed. If we don't heal them, they get passed on to the next generation. And so um, I guess the first step is to heal ourselves, right? Which is a part of the Shambhala idea, that if we can heal ourselves or... Uh, that's, you know, maybe the, the most important thing we could do. I don't know. Right, and that's what we do through meditation. 
we face our thoughts and let them go. We free ourselves from those perhaps traumatic thoughts. And we also, um, that's on the cushion. But also we read the books, listen to the talks, expand our view. That's important too. So the progress, you're talking about how to deal with the traumas that we inherit in some ways. So the, the, the path, the most effective way to move through is through learning and expanding the view, as I just said, through practicing meditation. Uh, but also there is the notion of, uh, it's, it's called contemplation. When we analyze, we go through our inner process of looking at ourselves, looking at the teaching, seeing how how they are applicable to our life, what do we accept. Some, some inner work has to happen as well. Mental, emotional, it's not just sitting and letting the thoughts go. Some of the time we do want to analyze our life and teachings so that it sips in, not just theory, but part of our nature, becomes part of our nature through that process. I'm always <clears throat> a little confused about the concept of, you know, we talk, talk about in society, a society of multiple people, but, but yet we're individuals, and so how do we get to, a, to an enlightened society? Well, you work on yourself, and you meditate, and you study. Um, so I have a question. What happens if I live in an enlightened society, and, and somebody who's unenlightened comes in? Am I still living in an enlightened society? <clears throat> well, that's a challenge uh, <laughs> to work with. But I, there is a very good word, contagious. I'm sure that everybody of you face situations when, when you are interacting somehow with somebody who is very generous, with financially or their time or their skill, you naturally want to be generous back. It's hard not to be. And vice versa, if somebody is aggressive, that triggers our aggressiveness. It's very hard to remain calm and accommodating when somebody is attacking you. So it's contagious. And that's, that's why it's a societal effort. It's we help each other through our examples. If somebody, we have a notion of warrior, right? Shambhala warrior. Shambhala warrior refrains from engaging into, into aggression. Somebody is aggressive, if you are strong enough, you are big enough, if you, are, if you have enough faith in basic goodness of yourself and actually the other person, it's easier to refrain from engaging into aggression. And that's how we deal with people who you just described, who are not necessarily trying to be in, in sync with this behavior. That's not always easy, obviously. Of course, of course. If it was easy, I wouldn't need to be this you talk be able here. To give us this talk. <laughs> the reason we're all here, because it's not easy. When you brought up contemplation, you, I, you know, I've taken some of the courses and some of the weekend um, levels, and and I was they were, given some contemplations, 
but I, and I find myself, you know, doing variations on the meta. During, you know, I've been trying to meditate a half an hour a day, and often I'll take up, you know, I try and get myself to do. I, I've been using counting to help myself watch my mind wander. So I, I try and do at least some just shamatha, you know, coming back to the breath. But then I spend, you know, at least half or more of the meditation in working with the metta or um, other sorts of contemplations. And then, true to my form, I feel guilty, like, oh, I, sh I shouldn't, I should have done more shamatha, I should have done, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, I was, when you said contemplation, that made me perk up. I thought, oh, it's okay, I'm doing, <laughs> I spend so much time contemplating. Discipline is important. There are, it's, it's important to decide in advance. I'm going to meditate, let's say, 15 minutes, and then I'm going to contemplate for, say, 10 minutes. Or, well, we normally do sandwich it inside. We meditate for some time, then we contemplate, and then we meditate some more. If you do that formal type of contemplation that you learned. But the word contemplation is used in um, a variety of ways. The, that is formal contemplations you were given. But uh, let's say after this talk, you go home, you are in the subway, you, you, you might continue thinking about this and thinking specific situations in your life where you could behave differently. That's also contemplation, digestion of the process. Your inner digestion in some informal way. That's also contemplation. Thinking about it, basically. And it's not only thinking, it's also feeling it, letting it become part of the way you want to manifest. It's not just an idea, it's, it's when we soak in, the th in those thoughts. That's part of contemplation. Different from meditation. Meditation is working on the mind to be synchronized with the body, be present. We need a cooperative mind. In order to apply these teachings, when the moment comes, we want the mind that cooperates, that doesn't jump automatically into habitual behavior, that can say, stop, okay, here I am. What do I, what's the real decent thing to do here? not what I always do, but let me have a fresh look. In order for the mind to cooperate, it needs to be um, trained. And that's what we do when we keep the mind back to current moment. We train the mind to be fully present and engaged in reality of current moment, so that it's available to us in when we need it. But now you make me I started to think about action, and you know, if we desire an enlightened society, there's working on ourselves, and then to heal, or, or however you want to express that, and then there's helping others, you know, like your teaching, mm -hmm. sharing. Mm -hmm. You know, if if we're interested in, in, in society becoming healthier, we have to. Yeah. That desire comes naturally, desire to help others. <clears throat> Remember, I never said in my talk that we are obligated to help others. But um, 
Because it doesn't have to feel like obligation. That's wrong. If it feels like obligation, it's wrong. But when somebody feels good in their own skin, when somebody is confident and feels, I'm, I'm in a reasonably good place, then we naturally turn attention outside. How about you? I'm okay. How about you? Maybe I can help you. That becomes a natural inclination. Not I, I'm supposed to. I'm, I'm training. I'm supposed to be compassionate. Now, come on, get, get compassion. <laughs> when, when, again, when you have that sense of completeness, fullness of your life, then you become naturally available to others. So you talk about trusting our basic goodness and to, you know, obviously, fundamentally, we are all workable. But is there any tool or suggestion or maybe certain contemplation that you would do when you're kind of in the throes of whatever, the shadow and rain and storm, and even though you know eventually there's probably light in the tunnel, but you just can't see it. And obviously there's not enough patience to wait out for whatever, whenever that light may shine through. So what do you do at that point? Uh, two scenarios. One is um, if situation allows you to sit down and meditate, you sit down and let go of those thoughts because what you just described are your thoughts, something happened, there was a trigger, but then you start having that inner story that you are not good enough, or this was not good, this was unfair, whatever the, the, the situation is, you, you talk to yourself. It's the inner dialogue, right? So when we sit down to let go of that inner dialogue, if you can have the time and opportunity to, it doesn't have to be on the cushion at home, it could be on a chair at your work, in the subway. But um, that inner dialogue, is uh, just an artificial story we tell ourselves that makes things worse. So we want to let go, keep letting go. It will come back, you let go, it comes back, it will let go. That's how we work with that, uh, if we have that opportunity. If you are in the moment, in the interaction, you can't say to the person, wait, I have to sit with this. <laughs> right? Uh, if you are in a conflict, let's say, and then it's more difficult, uh, but still doable, if you remember, it's difficult to remember that basic goodness, right? If you just remember basic goodness, two words, then it creates a shift. Now, you are not looking at the conflict as a battleground to win. Now you are looking at the, at the conflict as how to be wise here. And winning and losing is not really the, the main topic anymore. Because if you feel you're basically fundamentally good, you don't need to win anymore. You are good anyway. Why do you really need to win? You need to get some wisdom out of this. Help not only yourself, but the other person in the conflict. And so you, you, if you can remember basic goodness, and have that one second pause in, in your aggressive uh, reaction, right? 
then that second pause of being with your feeling, being present with reality, might, might give you some idea how, what to say or what to do different than you would normally do. Maybe it will be acknowledging the other person's pain. You see, uh, you see deeper than what actually is being said. What, what is behind that? What is deeper? What are the fears that drove that person to behave like that? Or your fears that drove you to behave like that? If you had that instant of pause, then and, and just stay with it and be fully present and look at the person, look at yourself, be, be fully aware of the situation, of your feelings including then it can give an opportunity to do something new, something different, something wise. Uh, that just reminded me of when I was a kid and I would be scared of the dark in my room, I would just keep my eyes closed as tightly as possible because it's, then I can't, you know, I, I like shut everything out. Um, but when I would eventually open my eyes again, my eyes would have adjusted to the dark and then I would be, I could still pretty much see in my dark room just because there'd be, you know, maybe some moonlight or something coming in. So, like you're saying, like, just be present with it. It's like kind of just like keep your eyes open. The dark will, like, you'll, you'll adjust. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Very good image. Yes. Just stay with it for some time through the fear, through discomfort, and see what happens. It's not denying that it's fearful and unpleasant and I'm angry or irritated. No, that's the reality, that's okay. But we don't have to act on it right away. If we just pause and let the emotion be. So I noticed since I've really committed to a practice that I have a space now. So when something's happening, it's not a waterfall of you know fear and anxiety and, and sometimes it is but not as often and there's just a little space in between and that space gives enough time for the intensity of whatever that is to just sort of lessen a little bit and I think like that is pure magic in my mind and just sitting on a cushion and breathing for 20 minutes a day it's that's pretty fantastic <laughs> 